Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with psychologist Dr. Skip Rizzo, Director for Medical Virtual Reality at the Institute for Creative Technologies and Research Professor at USC Davis School of Gerontology and USC Keck School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Dr. Rizzo conducts research in the design, development, and evaluation of virtual reality systems, targeting the areas of clinical assessment, treatment rehabilitation, and resilience. Rizzo received the American Psychological Association's 2010 Award for Outstanding Contributions to the Treatment of Trauma. Rizzo is currently examining the use of VR applications for training emotional coping skills with the aim of preparing service members for the stresses of combat. Skip, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you today. You know, I've had an interest in a virtual reality therapy for some years. I started dabbling a little bit with it in the early 2000s, back when actually it was probably a bit of a dinosaur back then compared to where things have gotten in the last decade or so. And I'll be really interested in hearing your thoughts about sort of the state of the art virtual reality and its uh, applications in therapy. And I... I'm familiar with you because I've been part of your listserv for many, many years. I'm not sure when you started that thing, but uh, you've been in the forefront since the very beginning. Yeah, that's uh, that's been around uh, the VR Psych listserv back in 1997. We started it. You know, this is really back in the Stone Age when probably anybody doing work in VR was on it. And it was probably about 100 people. Um, right. Yeah, let's start with talking briefly about what is virtual reality for people who are not real familiar with it. And then we can talk a little bit about how virtual reality has been applied toward the development of medical and therapeutic applications. Well, there are a lot of definitions of virtual reality. I tend to always start off with bringing it down to basics as a, uh, at its core, a, a, a advanced form of human computer interaction, a methodology that allows us to interact with computers and complex data in a more intuitive and natural manner. Now, branching off from that, you've got so many different variants of it, but the, the two primary variants are non-immersive and immersive. And you know, a lot of people will debate these points. You know, sometimes definitions end up uh, the, the definitional tail wags a conceptual dog. But mm -hmm. right. Um, you know, basically, when I think of non-immersive VR, I think of stuff you deliver on a flat screen computer, you know, not unlike, you know, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, uh, you know, any of these online activities where you can interact in a 3D graphic virtual environment. Yeah, sure. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure any gamer would tell you that it's very easy to get really, really immersed in a two-dimensional game space. Absolutely. I mean, if you have good, compelling content and a reason to be in it, you know, you suspend disbelief and you lose, you know, your your perception or awareness of your surroundings, as we see many times uh, when people are really involved in gaming and so forth. Sure. And then on the other end of the continuum is, you know, what we typically call immersive VR. And that is, you know, most commonly delivered in the VR headset where you're occluded from the outside world 
and the headset is typically tracked in a fashion that allows uh, your head movement or navigation in the virtual space to update the graphics in real time and create the illusion that you're actually in that environment. Sure. So just to get a visual, are we talking like a person has a headset that they're they're putting the goggles over their eyes and they're seeing something through the video that appears to be three-dimensional to them as they're turning their head and looking around? Right. A, a spherical video is typically made with a multi-camera system that captures 360 by 360 realistic spaces. You know, I've, I've, I, have, I have a small one that I duct tape to my motorcycle helmet and Went on a wild <laughs> ride on my bike. Nice. Uh, and you put on the headset and it's sort of like the vomit comet because you're not getting <laughs> any internal cues to your ears about the inertial movement on the bike. But you're right. seeing all this visual stuff fly by you. And uh, it's kind of like riding a rodeo ball. I, I, I show it to people and I say, let's see how long you can stay in it before you... You start to feel a little right. Well, you're down there in Southern California, so I imagine the title is something like "Riding a Harley Through the Mojave Desert at 12 a.m." Right? <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. So, Skip, um, tell us a little bit about your your background. How did you get into all of this virtual reality business? Uh, you know, there's an old saying: if you want to make God laugh, tell your plans. And uh, <laughs> it was unplanned. It was just a a collection of events that steered me in this direction. But I always had sort of a nature to look at things that involved media and to consider how in my chosen field in clinical and neuropsychology that we could you know, use media in ways that would engage uh, a user or a patient or research participant in content that goes beyond what you do with traditional talk therapy or verbal expression. I remember back in the late 70s when I was in, in graduate school, there was an article in Psychology Today talking about phototherapy. Mm -hmm. It was the idea about uh, you know, using photography in the therapeutic process, giving patients uh, you know, a camera, an instamatic or an instant uh, you know, Polaroid camera, and giving them homework assignments to take photos of things that were relevant or you know, things that challenged them and so on. And I remember talking to some of our professors in this experimental psych class and, you know, saying, oh, this might be a useful tool in therapy. And, and they kind of looked at me funny, you know, uh, you know, it, it, psychologists typically are, are taught to be very cautious and yeah. skeptical, which is good. I mean, you need that for good science. Well, anyway, I, so I always had this nature to look at those kinds of things. And finally, I started working so I had my doctor and I started working in brain injury rehabilitation. And I got very frustrated early on in the limitations of the kinds of tools that we had to help people recover their cognitive functioning after a, you know, a car accident, a brain injury due to, you know, some kind of blunt force trauma or a stroke or post-surgical loss of function, you know, whatever it was, central nervous system dysfunction in this way. And, and basically, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was doing this work, it was limited to paper and pencil workbook exercises, some, you know, physical mock-ups of environments, but, you know, very, very primitive stuff. And one day, one of my clients came in, and I think it was around 90, 91, uh, with a Game Boy, and he was all excited, 22-year-old uh, 
male, uh, had a car accident. I think it was probably a drunk driving car accident because he was pretty impulsive. But he um, he was unable to really focus on any of these kinds of rehab tasks for more than five or ten minutes. But here he was with his Game Boy glued to it, playing Tetris. And I, I watched him for 15, 20 minutes while he was playing it. And it was like, if we can ignite that interest, that focus, that uh, engagement with an activity, but direct it towards a rehabilitation exercise, then we might be, we might go somewhere. And, you know, you could make the case that Tetris is a visual spatial training activity, you know, it focuses people's attention. So it might train attention a little bit. But uh, I started thinking more about uh, computer games at that point. And I had a Nintendo NES system. I had the game SimCity, which if you've ever played it, it's a really a, a, quite an interesting executive function type activity where you've got to plot a strategy, implement it, monitor it. Things change over time in the environment. And I brought that in and my clients uh, just were like ducks to water, the ones that could learn the interface because the interface was a challenge. You had a, a Nintendo gamepad and you had all these complex controls. But for the, the folks that were high enough um, in terms of their functioning to learn that, they gravitated to it. And it was I thought it was a great activity, but I wasn't doing research. I was just doing clinical practice at that time. So then one day I heard an NPR report about virtual reality, and that's when all the lights went off. And it was like, wow, we can build, you know, just like an aircraft simulator, we can build VR environments of everyday functional environments, maybe gamify some of the activities in there. And we can do rehab in this compelling context. Now, uh, at the moment, I didn't realize how primitive VR was back in, I think, 92 or so. Yeah, for but, sure. Uh, you know, I got all excited about it and I bought a few books and started reading up on it. And and I went, one day I went to uh, my boss at this rehab center. I said, hey, I think there might be something to this VR stuff. And she goes, Oh, that's quite interesting. I just got this flyer in the mail and it was a flyer for a conference called Virtual Reality in Persons with Disabilities. And then she said, well, look, if you want to go to it, our, the center can, can pay for it and you can see if there's something there. And I went and, uh, you know, I, I just observed at that point, but, you know, I saw nobody was really do, not doing anything cognitive work, but there was some physical disability, primordial kinds of stuff teaching people wheelchair navigation, uh, very early uh, work by Dean Inman at the Oregon Research Institute. We're teaching children that, you know, how to drive a motor vehicle essentially in VR. And that was very inspirational. So I went back and uh, for the next year at the conference, I wrote a paper on how we could apply all this uh, for cognitive assessment and rehab. And I met a lot of people that next year. I met Walter Greenleaf, who's been a lifelong buddy since that time. I think it was 94 when this happened, 93, 94. And uh, that was really the start of it. And I realized that at that time, though, there was no way I could do it in my clinical work. There was, you know, equipment was very expensive, you know. So I ended up taking a, a postdoc position at USC in, in the Alzheimer's Center, simply because I, I had the neuropsych skills, but it was across the street from computer science. And so I, once I had the job, uh, I'd sneak over to computer science and knock on doors and talk to people about this kind of uh, stuff about applying VR. And one guy, uh, this guy Ulrich Newman said, hey, I, I got a friend here that's that got some new equipment and he wants projects. 
this sounds like it'd be right up, uh, right up his alley. And I met him and sure enough, um, we started building visual spatial applications on a 3D projection system, an old system called an Immersidesk. And uh, the, uh, it required a $200,000 Silicon Graphics computer to run it. Uh, you know, it was it, back then, you know, the vision for VR may have been sound, but the actual implementation, the technology just, you know, wasn't mature to really do great things. You could do some things well, um, but, uh, you know, and so VR kind of slipped into what the Gartner group calls the trough of disillusionment. Like it's a, a hype cycle of emerging technologies where there's a lot of hype and excitement, uh, what they call the peak of inflated expectations on the front end. You know, everybody's all excited, best thing since sliced bread. But then when people actually try it and they realize it's not ready for prime time, then it slips into this trough. And then if the technology does have some value and it can be evolved, which was the case with VR, it moves up what they call the slope of enlightenment towards the plateau of productivity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't realize it would take so long. I thought, oh, by 2000, we'll be rocking. And, um, and it, it, it finally went off of the, the Gartner Group chart. It languished in the trough of disillusionment to 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it shot up. What happened in 2017? Oh, I think it was the uh, the advancements in VR headset technology, mm. primarily driven by the initial Oculus Rift applications and headsets, developer kits and all that, and then all the other companies that jumped in. And that is really where we're at today. Um, we're in a renaissance where all the enabling technologies to deliver compelling VR, whether it's the computing, the computer graphics, interface devices, display technologies, uh, are, are, have all advanced sufficiently at the same time to the point where we can deliver high fidelity VR on a low cost, even standalone system, a, a headset that doesn't even require a computer, uh, all their processing is done on the headset. So. What happened basically in those intervening 20, 25 years or so was the technology caught up with the vision, you know, so we could actually do real good VR. Incrementally, it got better, of course, and we did a lot of research uh, at different levels of the technology. But the other thing that was important, particularly in the clinical area, is that the research evolved, that there was a large growing number of people that that saw the potential value bought into the vision of clinical vr and started doing research and so we right now stand to have probably the largest most evolved scientific literature of any vr use case in the area of mental health and rehabilitation and other areas of medical application so we're in a really good position now uh, where we have the science to guide us to some degree or to inform further research questions. And we have the technology to be able to do it at a relatively low cost. Yeah, amazing. And I want to talk with you a bit about some of the research and the different areas of applications for VR therapy and some of the mental health and medical areas um, in a few moments. But I've got to say, Skip, you were a real visionary because you spotted the applications for this way back as early as the 90s. And I don't know, was it frustrating for you to just see like, oh, there's so much potential here, but the technology is not quite there and you didn't give up? Like, gosh, I, I would have been, I think I would have been real frustrated. 
You know, I often say that if uh, I wasn't so delusional that and thinking that <laughs> by 2000, we'd be good to go, I might have chickened out. So let's talk a little bit about, I want to start with some of the mechanisms of action for VR therapy. And you've written quite a bit about this. And I'd like to talk specifically, there's these different areas of exposure, motivation, distraction, measuring, and engaging. And maybe we could spend some time briefly on each one of those to say, how are those effective, those different pieces in different aspects of VR therapy? If you want to talk about exposed, we're talking sure. about exposure therapy. You know, we're talking about exposing people to things that they are fearful of, uh, you know, they have a phobia and they have an irrational fear of something, uh, helping them to confront that fear and eventually, you know, get over it. And we're not talking about real fears that are based on real threat. We're talking about, you know, fear of public speaking, fear of heights, fear of flying, you know, things that really don't pose a heck of a lot of threat uh, to people, but they it impairs their life because of it makes it so they can't do things in the everyday world. Sure, like the, the irrational phobias that people have that they typically come to therapy for. Yeah, exactly. And so, and, and there had already been a, a very solid literature in that area, doing this therapy in imagination. Close your eyes and with guided imagery, the, the clinician yeah. or the patient would describe that I'm in a glass elevator now and I'm going up the first floor of this hotel and I feel my palms getting sweaty and all this, you know, stuff. But VR was a perfect match for that. Uh, and that was what, that's one of the, the core uh, application areas where you see the most research because, you know, people were doing it in 1993, 94, actually. Um, but uh, particularly fear of heights. So the exposed thing is, you know, it started with phobias, but now people do things with substance use disorder for what they call Q exposure, where you put people that are going through rehab for you know an addiction problem in context, VR context that activate an urge state, but they're in rehab so they can't use. So they're trying to reduce the potency of that stimuli by repeatedly exposing a person, raising that urge level, but then they can't act on it. And by doing that repeatedly, the, the theory is anyway, and there's some research that support it, that when you're cut loose in the real world, those external cues have less potency to drive them to use. So Skip, walk me through this a little bit. A person puts on a VR headset who's a has substance abuse issues, and they're in this virtual environment where there are potential triggers and they're practicing some skills to not engage in substance abuse activity. What, what would that look like? Give us a picture of that. Sure. You know, you think about in the real world, you know, somebody gets out of rehab and maybe they ride home and they drive by their favorite bar and there's their best drinking buddy outside waving them in <laughs> and all that. Well, you can do things like that. You're never going to replicate real reality exactly for that person, but you can activate those kinds of emotions and those kinds of urge states repeatedly in this context where the person can't follow through and use um, so when you put on the headset, you might be outside of a bar or outside of a crack house or shooting gallery, or if your addiction is gambling, you might be outside of a casino and you hear the sounds of the, the bells of the slot machines going off from outside and person, you know, gets kind of used to that. And then they're encouraged to go in 
and I go into these environments where there are, you know, whether it's a social gathering and people are at a party smoking pot or doing drugs or drinking a lot of alcohol and, and your job really is to raise that urge level. A lot of times you have to bring in other cues, uh, social cues, like, you know, somebody coming up to you and offering you a drink and so on. And so on one level, you've got this behavioral strategy where you're trying to habituate somebody to be so activated when they're in that situation by doing it repeatedly and have no follow through. But, uh, you know, on a more cognitive level, teaching people the kinds of cognitive behavioral strategies for drug refusal or for shifting their focus to something else. Uh, I used to run smoking clinics uh, back in grad school. And one of the first things we would do would be to have our clients in the first week, uh, we'd say, write down on this index card, three reasons you want to quit. And on the back of it, the three benefits you'll get from quitting. And so they do that. And then we take them and type them up, make them look real pretty, put them in a laminated thing next week and give it to them and say, all right, now when you're in a high risk situation and you're dying to have a smoke, pull this index card out real quick out of your wallet and just walk through it. Either say it aloud or think each of these statements aloud, you know, in your mind, maybe. By the time you get done going through those, you're cued back to the reasons why you wanted to quit in the first place. And a lot of times that intensive urge will have passed. So that would be an example of a relapse prevention strategy. So a therapist, I imagine, is probably working with the patient who's doing the virtual reality therapy, teaching them cognitive behavioral strategies, but then allowing them to be exposed to that kind of environment through the virtual reality, as opposed to just imagining what it would be like and then finding themselves in the environment. Right. You know, I think what VR does is it makes that imagined stuff less abstract and mm-hmm. more concrete. And I think that concrete element, uh, you know, ties into areas of the brain, even though you know it's only a simulation, your brain is reacting, at least the emotional areas of the brain react to the content in the simulation in similar fashion to how it reacts in the real world. And it's the same process as well with uh, treating PTSD, where you help a patient to go back to the scene of the crime, if you will, and confront and reprocess these difficult emotional memories from you know, the traumatic event they went through. Sometimes people say, what are you crazy? Why would you do that? But mm-hmm. you know, the short answer is we do it because we follow the science and the science shows that that type of confrontation and reprocessing really does reduce uh, some of the symptoms of PTSD and lead to better outcomes. I guess this still falls under the rubric of exposure. And I know you've done a lot of work with PTSD. Uh, There's the Braveheart system that you've implemented. Brave Mind, sorry. Brave Heart was a movie. With <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> right, right. Because we're, we're talking about the virtual reality, so we're more mind than heart, right? Um, so there's the Brave Mind system that you've developed um, at USC. Tell us about the environments and what's that like being exposed sure. to that in virtual reality? Sure. Well, with combat-related PTSD, we follow, and, and this is a, sort of a, a methodology for most good VR, clinical VR, is that you follow the already existing evidence-based approaches that are theoretically informed. 
And prolonged exposure done in imagination is a standard evidence-based approach for treating PTSD where the patient, again, closes their eyes, they imagine they're back where they were traumatized, back at the scene of the crime, and they narrate their experience as if they're there again, not in retrospect, but I'm walking down the streets of Iraq, uh, Fallujah, and uh, I'm noticing a guy in a window and he's on a cell phone and uh, you know, uh, I see him do something and all of a sudden there's an explosion across the street from me, a car is blown up and my best friend, you know, uh, a fragment from the car hits him in the head, he's unconscious and I'm screaming, I don't know what to do. And spoken in the first person as it's happening right then and there, you, you go through these things repeatedly with, with a good clinician there. And the idea is not to avoid thinking about or going to places that remind you of these traumatic events, because you end up generalizing it to everyday civilian situations and it makes you anxious going anywhere. You can't sit in a restaurant with your back to the door or right. you know, uh, go to crowded markets or anything like that. And eventually it's so distressing that people start to funnel their life down to very, in a very small way. So we're helping people to circumvent that avoidance, but we do it in VR. So what we have is uh, at this point for combat related, we have 14 different worlds or contexts that are the start point. You can put somebody in an Afghan village in a remote area or a busy marketplace in Iraq or in Af Afghanistan because there's a little bit different architecture and clothing of the people there. Um, you can put people in an industrial zone or a slum area or a forward operating base in a mountainous area or driving a Humvee down a desert roadway or a mountainous roadway or a U.S. desert environment as maybe a toe in the water. And you can put a person in any of these worlds that is relevant to the kind of context that they had a bad experience in. And then once they're in there, then the clinician has a control panel that allows them to modify in real time uh, all the core elements of the experience. So the time of day, the number of people in the scenario, were you driving the Humvee or were you a passenger in the back seat or up in the turret or were you in an MRAP or any of these different types of vehicles? And the clinician can make helicopters fly over, jets fly over, characters shoot RPGs from rooftops. Well, so they're actually being exposed to combat in these environments as well. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And do it and doing it at a pace the patient can handle. I mean, sure. Uh, we follow the same protocol done in the imaginal evidence-based approach of prolonged exposure, uh, typically 10 sessions. Uh, the exposure doesn't start until session three. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, there's a lot of other things that go on with the therapy, but basically uh, we're helping people to confront and reprocess these difficult emotional memories, but in a safe place with a clinician. And if it's too much for them, they can take a pause, although the clinician's job is to kind of push them not to avoid, not to tap out too early, you know, sit with the anxiety, mm -hmm. it will dissipate. Um, and eventually, you know, you see a person gets to a certain level in one session, and then they come back the next week, and the memory and the experience is sort of reconsolidated during that period. And now they can go back into that world um, at that level and have a little bit less anxiety. Um, and gradually, you, you know, one of the things you want to see is your progressive 
reduction in anxiety. It's probably always going to be anxiety provoking. And certainly we're not erasing memories. People are always going to have bad memories of their trauma experience. Um, but we're trying to make it so that those memories don't limit the person in their current life, which is likely not anywhere near as threatening. Now, we're working towards building these things out to focus on civilian applications, like with police officers or first responders wow. or docs on the front line of COVID that have had you know, a hellish year and a half. At its core, VR is ideally suited to create these experiences. Certainly, it's, there will never be an exact replica of what the person went through, but it is enough it's close enough to emotionally activate them. Yeah. So P PTSD just seems like a natural fit for VR therapy. Can we talk a little bit about some of the other anxiety disorders? Circle back to that. You talked about public speaking phobia. I think you had mentioned flying phobia. There's all sorts of phobias that affect people in their day-to-day -day lives. How would these be approached in a VR therapy environment? Well, public speaking, let's, do, let's get that one out of the way because that's the most common phobia that people report. You know, basically in that treatment, you're basically putting people at a podium or in some other speaking engagement in a, in a conference room. And you, you can systematically manipulate the number of people in the environment. You can manipulate their demeanor. Are they nodding their heads with as you're talking or are they looking down, checking their cell phone? Or are they shaking their heads negatively? You can manipulate all that. People with public speaking phobias that are really severe pass up job opportunities. They pass up opportunities to present at oh. conferences. They don't do a lot of things that they would really benefit from if they could do it. At the minor level, everybody's got to some degree some public speaking phobia, but it's really debilitating at, at its worst. Absolutely. So, But then take another example, like when mm -hmm. we talk about threat, a realistic threat. There's a lot of people that yeah. have fear of flying. And a lot of times they, they might fly, but they, you know, take a couple <laughs> Xanax, they have right. cocktails. And and for say business travelers that have to be on, you know, on the on the beam the next morning at 8 a.m. for a business meeting, that might not be the best approach. And there's some people who certainly don't fly. Now people say, well, flying is dangerous. Well, if you actually look at the risk, you find out that there's something like uh I don't know. Um, One in 10 million flights uh, is a fatality. I know that because yeah, I have yeah. a patient uh, with I, flying phobia that we looked into some of those statistics. So it really is an irrational exactly. fear. Yeah, you'd have to have 15 flights fall out of the sky every day to match the number of people right. who die in motor vehicle accidents. And these people don't think right. anything of driving in a car. So, you know, like you say, it, it, it limits their engagement with life. And a lot of people want to get over it because they have to fly or they want to fly. They can't drive everywhere. And so what that looks like is, you know, you start to address in VR all the anticipatory anxiety scenarios. And I've seen so, many of these applications, but I've seen a couple where it even starts off. You're in a room with a mm. suitcase, packing a bag. Sure, because anxiety is anticipatory in nature. It starts way before you get to the airport. Right, Exactly. And then, you know, you go through the airport and finally you're on that plane and you take a bunch of flights and sometimes they're nice and smooth and no problems. But uh, in some of these scenarios, you can click a button and there's turbulence or 
somebody's crying in the seat next to you or, you know, all these kind of provocative uh, yeah. triggers that, you know, help a person to go through. And, you know, look at it, it sounds very dead simple, but it is a complex condition. But the answer really is helping somebody to confront these fears and doing it repeatedly enough where the brain doesn't trigger. I mean, we're talking about amygdala mm -hmm. activation, you know, the fight or flight or freeze mechanism in the brain. You know, with these folks, you know, before treatment, that thing is, is firing like, a, you know, crazy. You've done some research to actually see what, how the brain is looking while somebody is doing VR therapy? Well, my colleague, Mike Roy at Walter Reed, uh, did a study pre and post PTSD exposure therapy, where you're in an fMRI magnet, and they present images and videos from our content. And this is before and after treatment. Um, and you actually see less activation in amygdala and increased activation in other areas that modulate emotion. Uh, so you see all the things happening in the brain that we would predict in terms of managing stress. Some people, I, I know a guy partnering with now on a, a proposal to NIH, it's what he's doing, what's called very brief exposure. I think they've done this previously. I think it was spider phobics and they present an image of a big hairy spider, but they present it in a sub threshold perception level where it's maybe 10 milliseconds oh, wow. followed by a neutral stimuli. Like a subliminal kind of um, subliminal message. Right, right. And the interesting thing with that is that you see when you're looking at the brain, when it's being presented, the, the user doesn't report seeing the spider. They report seeing the neutral wow. image that's presented immediately after. Wow. But the brain sees it. You see the amygdala right. spikes during that short period. So. It is getting into the brain. This is not reaching a level of conscious, conscious perception. And he actually showed later on in a behavioral avoidance task that people were more inclined to have a spider closer to them after all these times. So he's looking at this like, what, why do we have to put people through this kind of suffering uh, and this fear conditioning or fear deconditioning? when we, we could do it automatically. Man, Skip, that is super fascinating <laughs> research. Could you imagine just being able to flash microsecond images of feared stimuli and not torment the patient with it and have that work? Like that's well, fascinating stuff. Amazing. Um, yeah. I'm interested yeah. uh, in some of these other ones. OCD, for example, what are OCD environments look like? You know, I'm not all that familiar with um, what's been done in that space. I think there's one or two groups that have built these things out. And we, we had explored the potential of doing it with people that are, that are checkers, you know, that, that they, if before they you know, leave their house. Stove off, the lights are off, the heater's off. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll walk out the door and walk to their car and say, you know what? I don't <laughs> think I really checked it well enough. Right. I got to go back in there. Yeah. That's classic OCD. Yeah, so we, uh, and they do it a hundred times. Right. So that's, that's where yeah. it's really important. And so we built out a virtual home that had these kinds of functions uh, on them, but we never got the funding to follow through and do a clinical trial with it. That's just mm -hmm. sitting on a hard drive somewhere. But, um, you know, I think other folks is contamination 
fantasies, you know, that if you touch something, you're going to have a disease uh, from touching it. I imagine with things like the contamination and the touching now with the headsets, you can actually see your hands. Like with my Oculus, I can see my hand reaching out mm -hmm. and grabbing things and touching things. So you actually have the sensation of, right. well, it's not a physical touch and tactile sensation, but actually seeing yourself reaching out. Right. And that's a good first step because then, you know, you can go to a mixed reality environment where those stimuli are tagged to actual physical objects. And uh, a person sees that they've been touching this virtual apple, you know, a hundred times in the context of a supermarket. And then one time, all of a sudden you put a real apple in that spot <laughs> where they're going to reach for it and actually get that tactile sensation. Hunter Hoffman did some very early work with spider phobics in this area where he had a, a hairy rubber spider attached nice. to a, a tracking device. And, you know, originally people would reach out and they would touch a tracking device where this 3D graphic was and you could put the tracking device on the person's arm or on their leg or whatever, and the spider would be there. And then he got the idea of, let's take the tracking device and put it inside this hairy rubber spider. <laughs> And so now you're reaching for it. And now you're touching this nice. thing. So it looks He had to tell him in advance that was going to happen. But right, but I shoot. You could do that. You could do that with rubber snakes. Yep. You could do it with. In Hawaii, we've got centipedes. Like I, there's all sorts of ways you could do that. Let's um move on a little bit. There's these other ones. A uh, motivation. Yeah. What kinds of VR environments and treatment applications do we use motivation for? Well, motivation is really about the concept of helping people to engage in activities that they find uh, very boring, mm -hmm. repetitive, or frustrating. Like when somebody has a stroke and they have to do physical therapy and, you know, they're <laughs> it's, tedious. it's very difficult. I mean, Yes. And when you, when you have your therapist there with you for your one hour a week, they can motivate you. They can encourage you. They can get it, get you excited to do it. And then they'll say at the end of the session, all right, when you go home, I want you to do a hundred of these exercises twice a day. Mm. And, you know, some people may do them, but for the most part, the adherence to these regimens is, is notoriously low, sure. very low, start to fade off. And we know that in good physical and occupational therapy, it's about repetition, repetition, repetition. The more you do, the more you're going to reacquire function or maybe even change brain function in a, in a positive way. And this goes right back to what I was saying with my client that brought in the Game Boy. He you know, was motivated to interact in that game-like context to do a cognitive activity that if I said to him, okay, here's a paper and pencil thing, I want you to track the movement of where this object would go and draw a line to it and, you know, or come up with something that was yeah. very boring, which is how most of it was, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't put their, their heart and soul in, into it and do very many of those repetitions, but sure. playing Tetris, it's a game, you get all kinds of stuff. You've got that area of motivation for doing very, again, boring, repetitive and frustrating uh, rehabilitation activities. That's one of the core treatment areas with VR and one of the core assets. Uh, but you can also motivate people to do things that they wouldn't have the patience to do 
in regular life. So say, for example, you've got somebody with chronic pain and, you know, you want them to learn a certain exercise Mm -hmm. to help deal with their back pain or their neck pain or whatever, you know, again, very boring, but you put that in a game context, uh, they may do it. But alternatively, somebody with chronic pain, you can engage people in activities that might be helpful outside of the VR world. So for example, teaching somebody mindfulness strategies for chronic pain, that's a common practice. But if anybody who's gone through mindfulness training knows that you don't get the effect in the first go-round, it takes a number of practice times before you start to feel this sort of a calming, inward-focus experience. And so, you know, the classic with mindfulness is here, I want you to take one raisin, just put that one raisin in your mouth and focus on its texture. Now focus, I mean, you go to somebody with chronic back pain and say, I want you to take this raisin and I want you to focus on it. They're going to look yeah. at you and say, "What? what are, are you crazy? I got back pain. What, what is this going to do? But if you do these kinds of activities, focus people on, on you know, a mindful state or meditation, the standard relaxation stuff, you do it in VR and in maybe an idyllic environment or an mm-hmm. interesting environment or an environment soothing and calming, they may be more apt mm-hmm. to do it. And hopefully that would care because you can't wear a VR headset 24-7 to distract yourself from, you know, your pain. That, that was one, that's sure. where the distraction comes in. People with acute pain get through a medical procedure by distracting them in a VR headset with a game. You know, with chronic pain, it's a different animal. You're going to teach people things that they then use outside of the VR experience. And VR might be a useful tool. I mean, it is a useful tool. Yeah. So I imagine you could create environments where somebody who doesn't want to do something or it's painful or bored, the task is boring they have some kind of an objective to achieve in VR that helps them with whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. And it's more motivating because the, the VR environment's more interesting for them to be in. You know, like, uh, like my dad, I, he gets on his stationary bike during COVID and uh, bikes up uh, Kilimanjaro. So, right, that's motivating for yeah. him rather than yeah. just sitting there in his boring <laughs> office being on his exercise bike. So would that be an example of that? That's, a, that's exactly an example. And that was one of the core concepts that drove the idea that we could motivate physical rehab more by putting it in a compelling context. Uh, you know, there was a lot of research showing that people will exercise more uh, when they have an activity, like even if it's just watching a TV or playing some kind of, a, if they can play a game. And that's just a, 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 at its core, it's, you know, motivational yeah. psychology. And that's why motivate is so important in the five core um, elements of what VR brings to the table here. Skip, there's a few other kinds of uh, disorders that you've mentioned, and I'm really fascinated and curious about the VR applications for them. You talked about in some of your writings about autism spectrum disorders and how people with autism or on the spectrum could be engaged in virtual reality therapy in ways that are helpful. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Our project, which was sponsored by the Dan Marino Foundation, the famous football Mm -hmm. player from Miami, he had a son that was on the high end of the spectrum. Sometimes people refer to it as Asperger's syndrome. He started a foundation, and the foundation focused on how do you help people on the high end of the spectrum become functionally independent? Mm 
And a lot of times these folks are more than capable of doing a job of working independently. They may seem a little odd or whatever, but they have a hard time with their social skills and that impairs them or impedes them from going on a job interview uh, or being effective on a job interview. So we built a job interview scenario with multiple interviewers, different age, gender, ethnic background, different context, whether it was an office job or a restaurant job or a warehouse job and so on. And then each character could be set at three different levels of provocativeness. So you could have as one character that starts off very nice, soft touch interviewer, then practice with that. And once you get a little more confident, you crank her up to neutral or crank her up to hostile. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very rude. We tried, we tried hard on that. And we could draw from our own personal experiences in the lab. All of us had a horror yeah. story for a job interview. But the interesting thing with that was that these are folks that sometimes it's overwhelming for them to interact socially with a real person. Uh, the, the complexity or whatever the factor is in all this, it may, it's very difficult. But they were very much like ducks to water on their interactions with uh, 3D graphic characters. And they felt they felt relatively safe and they could practice. And in the, in the first study with it, I think it was a sample size of 64 folks. You know, you saw when you tested them in a real world interview and there was a, a structured rating scale for measuring performance and then gave them four trials of practicing in our vocational interview training agent scenario. They got progressively better during those four trials. The first time they did it, it was the same level as the real world. But after they practiced and did it again and again and again, they got better. And then when you put them in a real world context, again, for the post assessment, their scores showed that what they learned in VR translated to their performance in the real world. And I thought that was very, yeah. uh, very useful. That project now expanded to veterans that are having a difficult time after leaving the service, a lot of times with PTSD and so on. And we built out a version for that. We're a version that we're using with the LA probation department in a study that's upcoming this fall. To, you know, it's got different questions in it. For the most of these different questions are the ones on the on the high end of mm-hmm. hostile, provocative, like. Well, you're a juvenile delinquent. Uh, how, what makes you think I can trust you? Or you're, oh, you're a veteran. Oh, you ever kill anybody? Or oh, you don't have PTSD, do you? You're not going to wig out on us. You know, these are inappropriate questions, mind you. But they're the kinds of questions that do sure. get asked from time to time, and that people are fearful of or worried about, and uh, they get the practice. So it's a combination of a skill learning activity and how to represent yourself but also reducing your anxiety sure. by repeated exposures. And there are other groups that have been doing work like this with people on the spectrum and, and dipping down into the folks that are less high functioning, helping them to recognize facial expressions with virtual characters that uh, might be helpful in their everyday environment or having difficult conversations with family members and friends. There's a, a group in Dallas at the Center for Brain Health that um, has built out an application called Charisma, which is really a, a small city with all these environments of schools, coffee shops, stores, and, and so on, where you can go in there and you can practice your interaction across a range wow. of contexts. And I think it's it's really a, a good strategy to 
be able to put somebody in an environment that's manageable for them. These are um, avatars or these other people like, like in something like Second Life where other people are interacting in the environment. You know, the Dallas group did, uh, originally they used Second Life and they were avatars. They were driven by real people outside of the scenario. And then the Charisma app is avatar driven as well. You've got trainers that play the role. So you've got a high level of credibility in terms of the vocal representation and and the going with the flow of the conversation and so on. But um, it's not automated. Uh, now we're doing work with what we call agents, virtual human agents, where there is software that can understand yeah. know, speech, speech to text, take that text, use natural language processing, and in real time, understand what the person said, like, you know, Alexa or whatever. And then the character has a, a repertoire of responses so that you can mm -hmm. do some of this independently with practice. The, the job interview is brain dead simple. It's all on rails. It's just characters asking questions of the user, maybe having some off the cuff response after the user responds. But um, so there's all these different levels of virtual human engagement that can be brought to bear to address a range of problems. But, you know, the literature on this stuff, like say for social phobia is quite positive. A, a fellow by the name of Stefan Bouchard, uh, up in, in Canada, a good colleague, he has shown that VR exposure for social phobia is more effective than actually doing it in the real world wow. with trained actors. And yeah, and, and part of that simply is because you only have a limited number of training trials when you have to bring in actors uh, to sure. play the role and to do the real world role playing. But in VR, you can do it hundreds. Well, it's like flying phobia. You can't get on a plane and expose yourself to flying over and over again because of the cost and the hassle involved. Right. And, you know, you were mentioning something else that I think is really interesting, and that is the VR technology has really boomed in the last few years, as you mentioned, but I'm sure there must be a convergence there with AI technology as well, because as AI technology improves, that can be applied to the VR technology and we can have avatars that are driven by AI. And I'm sure that the environments will really benefit from that. I think the introduction of AI into VR applications, whether it's to drive a virtual human that you can credibly interact with, or if it's studying, if the AI algorithm can study your performance, say in a rehab task, and then automatically update the challenge level so that it keeps you in what the gaming industry refers to mm. as the flow channel, where the activities are not too hard that you feel crushed, but not too easy that you feel like it's a walk in a park. And so can AI software detect automatically what your performance level is and then make it just a tad harder enough that you can still kind of do it and if you fail it makes you want to get back into it i'm going to beat yeah. that thing you know kind of thing so there are a lot of ways that ai is brought to bear but uh, i think with virtual humans as you mentioned uh, that's going to be one of the, the mega areas but it'll also be the area with the most controversy and definitely in the clinical space when people talk about oh the potential to use AI and virtual humans to create virtual therapists. You know, people's head explodes when, you know, right. when you hear that. Uh, All of us may be out of a job in the near future. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. Well, and that's and that's a that's a pragmatic worry. I don't think it's yeah. gonna happen that way. But I certainly believe that for strategic interactions with patients at a time when a clinician is not available, they may serve some function. I would never at this point. I would never say, "Oh, you, you're depressed." Here, download this software package and talk to this virtual character <laughs> and call, call me yeah. in two months. Tell me how it went. But, you know, by the same token, you know, you only right. have one hour a week with a patient. What if you do, um, you know, your evidence-based cognitive behavioral uh, therapy for depression in that hour? And then you say, all right, twice this week before our next session, I want you to practice your self-compassion skills in this virtual context. Here's a, uh, an Oculus Quest or Vive Focus, whatever, and uh, take that home with you. And the software is installed, you just turn it on. And now you're gonna have a provocative situation that you've already talked to me about that is triggering uh, your depressive sure. and negative self-talk. And so in that context, I could see AI being quite valuable. But at this point, I'm, I'm an old school person you got to have a clinician on the front end to do a proper diagnosis, to develop a treatment plan, to begin the implementation of that treatment plan, and to monitor the changes that occur with that treatment plan so that you can make sure your patients are getting the, you know, the proper benefits. If you can sneak in a tool or two like these virtual simulations and expand the impact of your face-to-face -face time, then yeah. well, I'm all we do for that, that anyway, Skip. I mean, if we're seeing a patient with it's homework. Yeah, homework. Go out and go into a grocery store, touch a couple of apples before you pick the one you want to buy, go to the cashier, stand in line, pay for your apple. I mean, these are all part of the homework experience anyway. So if you have the opportunity to do it virtually, then that's great. And, and this goes back to the point about what we're doing is we're using this technology as a tool to extend or amplify methodologies that are already theoretically informed or scientifically, you know, evidence-based, but we have one big advantage and that is the patient doesn't yeah. have to leave their house. They're going to be more likely to do it. And with the right software and all privacy issues aside, we can tell how many times they actually went to that virtual supermarket and how many times they actually touched a virtual apple in the VR environment, we can monitor their adherence to that homework. A lot of times patients do, hate to use this word, but they'll bullshit you. You know, they'll say, oh, did you do your homework? Oh, yeah, yeah, I went to the grocery store. I, I, I did a nosedive into a bushel <laughs> of apples. You know? right. So there's a couple of other disorders that I was thinking about that you've written a bit about that seem really mm -hmm. interesting. And I'm wondering how this works in a VR environment. What about psychotic disorders? Psychotic disorders were an area that in the early 90s, people wrote articles about hands off. You know, you never should put uh, someone in uh, an altered reality that already has reality testing problems to begin with. Yeah, that would seem to be like the knee jerk reaction that most clinicians would probably have about this. Right. And certainly, you know, it's a case by case basis. People with florid psychosis that are completely out of touch with reality. I'm not sure if VR is going to be able to help them, but there's a lot of people with, uh, you know, various levels of schizophrenia that have perhaps paranoid delusions mm. about what people are thinking about them when they go into public places and those things, they ruminate on it and they, 
they go over. Well, you know, Dan Freeman at Oxford has done a couple of studies where he's taken folks with paranoid delusions and put them in common contexts with various levels of virtual people staring at you mm. or not staring at you, going into a subway or a virtual elevator and, and so on, and implementing standard cognitive behavioral strategies that are applied for this kind of cognitive reframing or reappraisal and implementing that using the VR context as the, you know, the obstacle yeah. course, if you will, and getting good outcomes. Now, the other end of the uh, schizophrenia or psychotic disorders area is, you know, there's also been quite a bit of work uh, looking at the cognitive functioning of people uh, with, with various uh, levels of schizophrenia. Uh, or do they have impaired executive function? A friend of mine in Israel, Ali uh, Avi Pellad, um, had built out a, um, a Wisconsin card mm -hmm. sort type task in VR, going through uh, an Egyptian temple to make decisions about where, how, and where you go. And he wanted to study executive function in this population, and in fact, did it effectively. And people didn't freak out. They didn't. You know, was, he certainly probably put a lot of great care into his subject selection, but there was nobody that got out of the, uh, you know, out of the Egyptian temple and thought they were a pharaoh afterwards <laughs> or anything. But again, it's not bad to be cautious about maintaining the safety and well-being of your patient. The problem comes in is if you're so overcautious that you don't use things that they could get mm -hmm. some benefit from. You know, with the PTSD work, there's some old school clinicians that are not very favorable about tech apps uh, for a variety of reasons. In fact, one of the founders of the field of prolonged exposure, I won't mention her name, but she's the grand dame of this. Mm. She hates VR. And one of the common critiques was, oh, there's too much of a potential to re-traumatize people, to make them even worse. Yeah, it, it, that's an it's an empirical question, right? It is. And people have studied it with what they call deterioration analyses, where they look at the people who don't benefit, not looking at all of the glowing success stories, but looking at the people that either stay the same or show less um, function um, after therapy. And there was one that came out in Journal of Anxiety Disorders, uh, January tw uh, 2019, uh, where they documented that the use of VR in PTSD and anxiety disorders did not result in significantly more negative results than any other treatment. And uh, Deborah Bidel at University of Florida also tracked down people that had dropped out of PTSD therapy, like thinking that they dropped out possibly because it was too much for them and it freaked them out and they, you know, they ran out the door and now they're they're hiding in their house. Well, she tracked down a large percent of these folks that had dropped out of her, her program one year later and did a, got coaxed them in to do a full-scale PTS assessment mm -hmm. and found no difference whatsoever in their entry-level status and their post-status and that it was no different compared to uh, traditional therapy with people. We, we, we know prolonged exposure has a high dropout rate. Not for everybody, or maybe people are thrown into the deep end of the pool a little too early and they're not adequately prepared 
or what the rigors. I mean, it's hard yeah. medicine for a hard problem confronting traumas. And, you know, perhaps VR can, yeah. can adjust that, uh, maybe do things gradually in a controllable fashion to ease someone. But anyway, the point being, we haven't seen it. Now, certainly it could be the file drawer effect where these negative effects uh, maybe get written up or, you know, nobody reports them. You know, we don't know that. But as far as the documented science in this meta-analysis on deterioration in Journal of Anxiety Disorders, that wasn't found to be the case. Yeah, that's great. So treatment efficacy aside for a moment, there's really not a whole lot of evidence that it's harming anybody. So uh, Skip, how about depression? I think earlier in the interview, you were talking about self-esteem and self-talk and mindfulness. Have you seen any studies or work done specifically on depression? Yes, um, there's really innovative work being done. I believe it's at University College in London. I'm forgetting her first name, but a woman by the name of Falconer. That's her last name. Falconer et al. 2016. That was, I think, what you cited in your paper. Right. And there's a newer one. There's a 2019 Mm. citation as well. One of the principles of cognitive therapy for depression is that uh, these folks are depressed partly because they have poor self compassion that you know when they do something badly or poorly or not up to some standard they tend to blame themselves i'm a bad person i'll never get any better there's a negative bias and all that Um, when they are successful at something they write it off as just a fluke you know i got lucky or it won't happen again that way probably i'm doomed you know all that kind of stuff what they did was like a body swapping activity in VR, something you can't do any other way. And basically what they did is they coached uh, these patients in self-compassionate thinking. You know, I mean, the core cognitive behavioral therapy is it's not the event in the world, but what you tell yourself about that, that event. And that uh, people have faulty automatic thoughts that automatically drive a negative uh, feeling state or emotion. And, and so they coach them on these negative thoughts and how they interpret their experience in a more compassionate way. And then they put them in a virtual environment where their task was to go in and there was a child mm. in the virtual environment that was in mm-hmm. a state of stress. And they said, go in there and you're going to see this child very upset. I want you to talk them down. I want you to be compassionate and talk to them in a way that'll help soothe them. And so I've got a classic video and, you know, of this where, you know, you got a person in there and they're saying all the things, you know, they were coached on, like, look, you know, uh, these things don't always go on forever. It might not be your fault. Uh, You know, all or rational kinds of uh, ways that you should talk to yourself maybe when things aren't going so well. So they do that for a bit. And then all of a sudden, they flip a switch and now that patient is in the role of the child and what plays before them is the virtual version of themselves as an adult standing up above them and all their bodies being tracked. And and it's a replay of what they just said with an embodied delivery of themselves saying it. And they find that uh, in that study from 2016, I think it was only 16 Mm -hmm. patients, but they got pretty good results. Um, in teaching that. Now, some people may say, and I, I certainly said it at first, well, why not just have a person record compassionate thoughts that they might, you know, read from a script and record that and then play it in their ear while they're 
facing a challenging event and maybe their own voice, maybe you modulate it and it sounds like a dreamlike inner world thought, whatever you could do that. And I think that's in fact the study that's going on right now. But the key element with the VR is that you're embodied in the character. You're experiencing it. So we're experience crafting, if you will, to perhaps go beyond what you could get from a simple audio recording. It's an empirical question whether it's going to be better or, or whatnot. But you know, certainly the work with you know body swapping and embodiment has moved forward in other areas. I know that Mel is doing a study with um, intimate partner violence, where a spouse may uh, be threatening to you know their partner and uh, hostile and everything. So you know, there's a great video on YouTube with this where they show a guy who is sent by the court system to the lab and they have him act out what he thinks is a common conversation he might have with his wife or his partner. And they provoke him. They say, well, she's, you know, disagreeing or they role play it out. And that person is, you know, the, the, the offender is like, you know, starting to yell and use threatening body language and so on. Then they pop the person in the role of the victim, mm. pop that guy in there and then have their avatar come in mm -hmm. and come at them like a, you know, a raging bull or, you know, it's like, like empathy, empathy training sort of. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm not sure if you could do that with simple video, but I think there's something about the embodied element of being in a context that I can totally see it. Skip. I really agree with that. And I'll tell you, in my practice, I don't know if this is the correct clinical term for it or not, but I call it an empty chair technique. And I, mm -hmm. what? I yeah, okay. Yep. And That's so you see this all the time where, you know, patients will hold themselves up to a much more a higher and rigorous and harsh standard than anybody else on the face of the earth. So you have them pretend like they're right. talking to somebody else and counseling them and comforting them and showing compassion uh, that they, as they would naturally do. And then you say, well, listen to what you're saying them. Why wouldn't you say that to yourself? And let's practice that. But this virtual environment with the avatars that we're talking about, it's basically accomplishing that exact same thing, but, you know, in, in more, in a more realistic setting. So I can really see the benefit of that and the efficacy of it. So that's just amazing work. I, th I think it's I think it's really the next generation of um, VR um, treatment and, and clinical care, whatever yeah. you want. wellness is going to involve virtual humans in these types of types of contexts that people can practice and they can role play. And there are so many opportunities here to rule it out by, you know, somebody thinking in an old school way that, oh, that's a natural, you know, we don't want people interacting with virtual buddies or companions. Well, what if they don't want to interact with real people anymore? It's like, I don't think it's going to work out that way. If, you know, and the people that that would happen, like people used to say this about autism, uh, when people practice on Second Life, there were a number of Second Life applications and social gatherings for people with, on the spectrum, one site called Brigadoon. And they'd say, oh, that's great. Now they're going to spend all their time online interacting behind the facade of an avatar. Well, you know, maybe that practice, you know, and, and people did like it. They enjoyed it. They did spend a lot of time. Maybe that practice is good for them and, and it'll generalize to the real world. But also the people that are going to be 
you know, addicted to that. If they weren't addicted to that, I would put my money on that they were addicted to some other solitary activity. They were probably sitting in front of uh, their Xbox sure. for 10 hours a day. Or Well, this is the classic knee-jerk fear about any new technology and yep. how it's going to adversely affect the population. This comes up all the time, right? You've probably seen this every step of the way yep. since you became interested in technology and clinical work. To- totally. I mean, I, fortunately, I'm notoriously a bad <laughs> listener sometimes. So I, right. I didn't pay a lot of attention to look some of that, but I, there's a lot of things I did pay attention to because there's a lot of pitfalls, a lot of ways that you can screw up with virtual reality. You got to listen to, you know, uh, people that have been around the field for a long time and have good clinical insights, but not also realize that they're, they're not always right. You know, you've got to, you got to base it in science, but you got to, sometimes you go with your gut and try things out. As long as you try to have a scientific rudder here, to guide you. Now, I can tell you about my next adventure that I'm sure many people are going to be very critical. Yeah, let's of. let's hear it. Yep. Uh, I'm working with a group called Virtual Psychedelic. Wow. And the concept here is: is it feasible to integrate virtual reality with psychedelic therapy? Now. Uh, five years ago, I might have hid in the closet about that or not. Or in fact, I said, you don't want to combine two harebrained schemes <laughs> uh, because you're painting a bigger bullseye on yourself. But in reality, the state of psychedelic therapy is very promising right now. Uh, there was a study just, just out of Johns Hopkins. This is not just a bunch of old hippies shooting from the hip. These are, these are real scientists from... Uh, the MAPS group and from Johns Hopkins and I think uh, Columbia has a program, but they're studying the uh, implementation of various types of hallucinogenics or, you know, uh, psychedelic drugs like ketamine, uh, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, ecstasy. And just last uh, two weeks ago, a study, a really solid, well-controlled, randomized controlled trial looking at PTSD and and uh, use of ecstasy had a very powerful impact. There's another study that, that I just came across where a large sample of people who had done very controlled psychedelic therapeutic experience, very controlled, you know, you're there six, eight hours in a room, you've got plenty of staff to look out for you and to guide you and so forth. Something like 68% of the people that went through that cited their psychedelic experience as in the top five of their most meaningful life experiences. And the data is coming in pretty nicely on addressing depression, addressing end of life issues, Mm -hmm. the PTSD work, substance Mm -hmm. use, there's some good data now. So I just want to take, before I go into the harebrained scheme too much, I just want to say, there, there is science now in the psychedelic domain, and it's endorsed by the government. Uh, the FDA has looked at this as an investigative um, uh, drug level thing, no longer in that category sure. of uh, you go to jail kind of thing. Well, I wouldn't propose using VR for a whole therapy session, but I believe that what I call experience crafting can be done using VR as a tool at strategic junctures during the trip, depending on 
what the clinician, what the patient's therapeutic objectives are, informed by an expert clinician, and so on. So say, for example, in this area, people talk about set and setting, the set that you have for going into this. What do you expect? What are your expectations? And how does the setting affect how the experience occurs? Well, you could do pre-treatment set crafting in a way that shows a person what they may see perceptually, not, you know, not Mickey Mouse's jumping all over the place, but um, not, you know, not florid hallucinations, but some of the perceptual shifts that go on and some discussion of uh, what their inner state might feel like and better prepare people in advance of, of the experience to get the most out of it. Then sometimes people get very anxious in the beginning when they're coming on to some of these drug experiences Maybe there's ways to help them to relax mm-hmm. and coast into it in a way that reduces fear and puts them in a state of readiness as they move forward. And then we're talking 10, 15 minutes here. We're not talking about strapping a headset on for eight hours. And then maybe after a person goes through the peak of the experience and then they kind of coast down where people report a lot of insight that occurs or a lot of different ways of thinking or a reduction of their standard defense mechanisms and how they interpret life, their automatic cognitive thoughts uh, that they use to protect themselves, sometimes in a, you know, a maladaptive fashion. And those things get stripped away. That's fertile ground for maybe doing other things, you know, whether it's talking to an avatar mm. about something that's intimate or talking to an archetypic character that represents, you know, somebody that scorned them or, when they finally get to say what they want to say or other types of experiences. So I I just did a talk at a conference on this and I laid out kind of a roadmap for the types of VR experiences that could be brought to bear. And the model being things like whether it's an act physically active application or passive application, whether it's surreal or hyper real, uh, whether it's directive therapy or more free-floating, relaxation, mindfulness, meditation, guided imagery stuff. And there's a whole model that lays out the juxtaposition of different ways VR can be brought to bear on this stuff, not as the be-all, end-all, and it's not a magic formula. If you throw these two things together, you're going to get four, but rather a model that will help guide the research and Perhaps in, in clinical practice, we may see better outcomes. And maybe there's things that you do in, the, in the, the psychedelic session that you can do in VR that then after the session, you can go back to those virtual experiences outside and promote generalization mm-hmm. from the session to the everyday life of that person. Mm-hmm. It's really, really fascinating, Skip. If I understand you correctly, then the therapeutic intervention with the psychedelics would be the primary thing. And then the VR environments would be sort of an augmentation of what's going on with the psychedelic therapy. Is that sort of the way you're conceiving it? Yes, I I look at it exactly like that. That um, Again, I call it experience crafting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not making a person have this total experience, but you craft certain elements at strategic junctures. And, uh, you know, you've got a disruption of thought and emotion on the inside. That's transient, but there's potentially long-lasting effects. And certainly most of it has been positive, but we have to be, again, patient safety is our first hallmark concern. 
you know, that experience that a person has inward can be somewhat governed or shaped or crafted by what their external surroundings are. And currently in, in psychedelic therapy, it's, you know, you're in a quiet room, you bring your own music if you want. Some places you've got scent candles or whatever, but they're in some sense trying to craft an experience of non-threat in that kind of a context. And you have access to a person during the whole experience if you want, or you can have a solitary experience. Well, I look at VR as just a tool simply to facilitate the crafting of an experience when there's a logical rationale based on sound clinical principles and the objectives of the patient. So that's how I see it being implemented as a, uh, a tool to amplify the impact of, uh, of, of this already emerging form of treatment that uh, certainly we've got, we've got to do more yeah. research. And uh, that, that's what I want yeah. to do working on putting together content that could be available to facilitate this kind of research. And then, you know, that's where my model comes in. I, I'm presenting just a, a roadmap for how you might be able to do this. I'm not making claims. Well, that it sounds amazing. <laughs> like I, I can't think of anything that's more cutting edge than psychedelic VR therapy. So once you get a little further down the road on that, I'll have you back on the show if you have some preliminary <laughs> studies or work you've done with it, because I think that's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's got me really excited. I, I think there's some potential here. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. again, you know, there's going to be a lot of a lot of people very critical, and I, I really waited to come out on this concept until I felt there was now a sufficient safety yeah. and clinical efficacy literature on the psychedelic. Well, you know, Skip. When there's a lot of people that are coming out with hesitations and concerns about it, probably means it's a great idea. So, <laughs> so I wish you luck with that. Um, Skip, it's been a wonderful conversation with you about virtual reality and its applications for therapy. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, these were uh, very thoughtful questions that you had, and uh, I, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Skip. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Music